And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this providential intersection of our calendar, of this passage, the study in Ephesians that we are undertaking as a church body. I pray that the truth of your word will meet our needs today, that the truth of your word will expose areas where we do not have right thinking, that the truth of your word will comfort us, remind us of your goodness. I just pray that you will work in each heart and mind here today, especially in mine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I sometimes wonder if good and thoughtful people have ever been more depressed about the human predicament than they are today. Of course, every age is bound to have a blurred vision of its own problems because it is too close to them to get them into focus. And every generation breeds new prophets of doom. Nevertheless, the media enable us to grasp the worldwide extent of contemporary evil. And it is this which makes the modern scene look so dark. It is partly the escalating economic problem, population growth, the spoliation of natural resources, inflation, unemployment, and hunger. It's partly the spread of social conflict, racism, the class struggle, disintegrating family life, and partly the absence of accepted moral guidelines leading to violence, dishonesty, and sexual promiscuity. Man seems incapable of managing his own affairs or of creating a just, free, humane, and tranquil society, for man himself is askew. That was written by John Stott in 1979. Um, He wrote a lot of the commentaries that we, we enjoy using. He was a pastor in the UK, I believe, in 1979. He wrote that. And when I read that, Last week, it was like, this could be written today. Our hearts have been heavy, and perhaps we have also been depressed, perplexed, and saddened by current news. Providentially, as I prayed, our message today comes from a text where Paul's main goal is to have us fully understand 
our mean estate, if I can borrow those words from the Christmas carol, which how is this? Our mean estate, our plight, our true predicament outside of Christ, that is. You see, here in chapter 2, Paul takes us to the heights of glory, but only after traversing the depths of our former status. It's been a couple of weeks since we were in Ephesians, and if you're like me, the holiday lack of routine really throws off the calendar. I woke up a couple times this week saying, i got to preach today, and like, not ready. Oh, good, it's Friday. You know, it was just really messed up. I'm not complaining, of course. But as we look at the text today, I want to take a few moments to reset us, as it were. We want to remember where we were, um, and that's why it's important to kind of look back to chapter 1 as well as this section of chapter 2. Earlier this month, Chad closed out chapter 1, reminding us of Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus and, and prayer for us. Paul prayed that Christians would have their eyes opened and that they might know the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of God's power. We looked in detail that next week, as Chad preached, of the meaning of God's power, that God worked in Christ to raise him from the dead, establishing him in high places in the heavens, and that all things were put under his feet as Christ is established as the head of the church. And now we come to chapter 2. We come to chapter 2, and I am, reluctance not quite the right word, but I'm cautiously optimistic that the way we have divided up this chapter will not do lasting harm. But man, these verses 1 through 3, this is the beginning. This is the down before the up. This is the dark before the light. This is a roller coaster of truth and hope that culminates in verse 8. But I don't get to verse 8 today. Verse 8, we know this. For by grace are you saved through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. That's a glorious thought. And we might wish that Paul would just cut to the chase and say that and say that over and over. But this section that we'll cover today, verses 1 through 3, this section is necessary. Verses 1 through 3 are like the prologue in a book or a movie. They set the stage. This section helps us to understand the story better. The good news of this chapter becomes great news because of the bad news that we're going to look in depth at today. And let me tell you, this section is bad. So, But I, as I prayed... I pray that it will be a blessing. On Christmas Day this past week, my family and I, and many of you perhaps, went to see Les Mis, Les Miserables, the movie. This is a story that we have, I don't think any of us have read it, but uh, we have seen it a number of times in the musical theater format. But it was a greatly moving and enjoyable story of redemption, of law and mercy, of love and forgiveness. The first four musical numbers in that movie or that, uh, that musical, they tell the story, the backstory of Jean Valjean, a convicted criminal being released from hard labor prison where he has been for 19 years. These four songs tell of his release, of his parole, his commitment of another crime, uh, the forgiveness granted to him by the priest whom he stole from, and then his conversation with God as he comes to grips with his condition and his need for repentance in the song, What Have I Done? I shall not sing it. I want to, but I shall not. Without these four songs, though, without these four songs, we don't understand the enormity of the change in this man's life and the rest of the story. With these four songs, we see a changing of heart. And these four numbers, if you look at the 
always accurate Wikipedia, these four numbers are, are titled with the prefatory prologue, like prologue, the parole, prologue, um, the, the forgiveness. They're prefaced with prologue. And so similarly, these three verses are the prologue. Uh, for some of you, you may not like show tunes and Broadway plays. So this is similar to Return of the Jedi is not a it's not a great movie. It's not even a good movie without Empire Strikes Back, which is a great movie, but very dark. Empire Strikes Back, Han Solo, Ice Cube, Luke, No Hand. Spoilers, spoilers, everyone, if you haven't seen it. But you see, in, in many things that we, um, that we enjoy, there has to be a dark, a conflict before the good story. Mr. Darcy, his love for Elizabeth Bennet is not great if we don't know what his backstory is. And that's about as broad as I get in my cultural examples. That was a struggle. But since these three verses are the prologue, and I'm going to end up having to close the sermon at the end of the prologue, you need to, Lord willing, try your best to be here next week. Promise me you'll come back next week to hear how the story of our life progresses. This chapter is more than just an exemplary story to warm our hearts and remind us intellectually of truth that we once experienced. This is our story. The you in these verses is us. If you can pardon my grammar. The you in these verses that we read is each of us. So Paul in chapter 1, he writes that God has immeasurably great and mighty power as evidenced by God raising Jesus from the dead, lifting him up and exalting him. And here in verse 2, our main theme that we'll get to in the next few weeks, our main theme is similarly that we too are dead and God has raised us up and exalted us with Christ. So let's look at the bad news. We have to look at it in depth. These 10 verses are like a before and after study. Here we are on December 30th, 2012. We're about to turn a calendar page, start a new year, and more than any other period of time in our lives, perhaps, we really understand what, when I say the, the concept of before and after, you've seen before photos and after photos, perhaps some of us are thinking of weight loss. We'd like to take a before picture now and, and, and uh, rejoice in the after. Um, Paul is also comparing us in this passage with our before state and also our after state. There are many contrasts I'll just hit real quickly between the pre- previous condition of an unbeliever and, a, and their condition after salvation. Dead in trespasses and sins in verse 1 is contrasted with being made alive in verse 5. Being under the lordship of the ruler of the kingdom of the air is a stark contrast with being in a relationship with Christ, seated with him in heavenly realms. God's wrath in verse 3 of this chapter contrasts sharply with his mercy, love, grace, and kindness. Children of wrath become adopted by the king and saved by grace. So today we focus on the before. We focus on the dark prologue. And the points of this message are simple. Outside of Christ, number one, man is dead. Outside of Christ, man is a captive. And outside of Christ, man is condemned. These are hard truths, but this is what God has for us today. And we pray that God will speak through his word. So first, let us look at the first point. Man is dead. This is an inauspicious and blunt opening to Paul's description of man's state. And you were dead. 
This is perhaps one of the more difficult truths for unregenerate man, for unbelievers, for non-Christians to, to understand. Because we don't seem dead. We live. We, we love. We choose to do things. We're creative. We exercise. We, we enjoy life. We eat. How can we be described as dead? Now, when Paul describes man as dead here, he is not talking merely about physical death or the absence of breath and pulse and heartbeat. This verse speaks to spiritual death. Spiritual death is a more dire, serious condition than physical death. Spiritual death is simply separation from God, alienation from God. There's an expression you may have heard, and I uh, reference it in my title. This expression is dead man walking. I believe this originated on the, um, the death row portions of prisons where men were scheduled for execution. They were labeled as dead men, dead men walking as they walked from their cell to the place of execution. In our modern usage of this term, it can refer to any person in a doomed or untenable uh, situation. Sometimes at work, an employee that's sure to be fired but still has a job, it's like dead man walking. I saw it this morning when I got up, Andy Reid, coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, Dead man walking, he's sure to be fired tomorrow. This is also more seriously an apt description of mankind's state outside of Christ. There's a semblance of life, a semblance of a full and happy life, perhaps, but an actual condition of being spiritually dead. Calvin describes spiritual death as nothing else than the alienation of the soul from God. But why are we dead? Why are we this way? What, what is the cause of the spiritual death? Verse 1 concisely states that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Without going into a Greek language study, because I'm not qualified to do so, without going too deeply, we can see that trespasses connotes a meaning of overstepping a boundary. When you trespass on someone's land, you have crossed the boundary. This is a willing act of commission. This is to go beyond the appropriate standard. And God has set standards that we have trespassed over we have crossed over but we are also dead because of our sins and sin the word sin carries the meaning of missing a target so to come short to err to wander from the path we see that both our acts of commission trespasses and our acts of omission of missing the standard and sins are cause for our spiritual death our sin and our disobedience render us dead and this is a hopeless this is a helpless condition without Christ. Paul also takes special care, and we should do this as well today. Paul takes special care to emphasize the universality of this condition of spiritual death. In other words, this applies to everyone, all mankind. Note that in these verses, he transitions from saying, you were dead and you once walked. As he goes down to verse uh, 2 and 3, he says, we all once lived. And like the rest of mankind, and he's broadening it, just in case you're wondering, like he's talking to that person there, he's not talking to me. He says, we all once lived this way. This condition of spiritual death applies to everyone. Everyone is spiritually dead apart from Christ, and everyone is unable to help themselves from this state. There's a theological term that you may have heard called total depravity. Total depravity. It's one of the key Doctrines, the key truths for those who believe the doctrines of grace, which emphasize God's sovereignty in all, especially salvation. Now, the term depraved is not a word that we use frequently. 
in our homes, unless you're very well-educated. We don't use this term a lot, um, unless we're talking about something really, really bad. Maybe you heard it in the news in the last few weeks. But here in this verse, in, in Ephesians 2, 1, the doctrine of totally depra- total depravity applies here because we are completely and utterly dead outside of Christ. Every part of every human being, apart from the grace of God, every part of us is morally corrupt outside of Christ. Now, that is not to say that, is not to say that all humans are depraved to the fullest extent of depravity. That does not mean that people, all people are as bad as they can possibly be. But it does mean that there's not a part of mankind, not a part of a person, their mind, their will, their desires, their actions, their goals. There's not a part of us that's not messed up in some way. Even the good which we may intend is faulty in premise, false in motive and weak in implementation. We don't choose to do the right thing naturally. In recent weeks, we have seen manifestations of what our society and culture consider to be evil. The governor of Connecticut said that evil visited Newtown on that Friday. But the truth of this verse is that we can truly and we should truly say there, but for the grace of God, go I. All mankind is capable of all evil. and We should be careful never to take pride in thinking or saying or living like we would say, I would never do that. I would never be addicted to drugs. I would never steal. If not for God's grace visited upon your life, even if you are a non-Christian today, if not for God's grace visited on your life, that might be the path of action that you might take. Another, I read another illustration of total depravity, which may explain it more. If you put a drop of poison into a cup of water, and the poison is strong enough that a sip of that water is enough to kill you. It may be a small dosage. It may be a diluted um, concentration. But every part of that glass is corrupted. I mean, it's not as corrupt or as poison as it could be, but every part of that glass is corrupted. And by the same token, every part of our lives outside of Christ is morally corrupt. So we are dead from our trespasses and sin. We are spiritually dead. We are alienated. We are separated from God. And we are helpless to make up for this condition of death. We cannot resolve it on our own. And the source of our redemption must come from outside of us because the source of our death comes from within us. This is not a popular message. It is countercultural to say that every part of us is in some way corrupt. We like to say something broke inside of that guy, and that's why he did this. We like to say, Some people are bad, but in so doing, we're implying that we're not bad. There's an age-old saying, I don't even know the origin of it, that says there's a spark of divinity in all of us. There's a little bit of God in all of us. Or sometimes we say, deep down, we all have some good in us. We have seen recently what the human heart is capable of doing. And now providentially, our passage for Scripture today confirms that our hope is not found in the human heart. Our salvation is not found in us. But before we go to that solution, and I do not wish for this message to leave anyone here without hope, but before we go to that solution, we have some more bad news. In in, uh, point number two, man is captive. 
Not only is man outside of God's grace dead, but as man continues on his path as the walking dead in a quasi-life, man is walking in captivity. Now, captivity to three things noted in this passage. There are three things that we are captive to outside of God. We are captive to the world. We are captive to the devil. We are captive to our flesh. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Let's look first at verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world. In which you once walked. Paul is saying that as dead men, we walked according to the culture of this world. We were captivated by the culture of this world. And isn't this true? Even for believers. The culture of this world is an entire value system that is alien to God. This culture pervades the entire world and we walked willingly in that culture. Make no mistake, it is not correct to view the world as morally neutral. Biblically, we are told, practically, we can see that our general culture of our world that we live in is sinful. Stott goes on to say there's an outlook of the world that is secular, which repudiates God. There's an outlook of the world which is amoral, which repudiates absolutes. Part of the world is materialistic, which glorifies consumption and waste. The world is indifferent to poverty and hunger. We can see that the natural bent of this world is for racial discrimination, for dehumanizing, for misogyny. This influence is pervasive, and people tend, both Christians and non-Christians alike, we tend to surrender our minds to popular culture, through television, through the Internet, through books, magazines. This is bondage. This is cultural bondage. And this culture can be summed up by saying, if you desire it, it cannot possibly be wrong. If it's your dream, no one has the right to tell you that that's wrong. No one has the right to question another person's desires. This is the culture that enslaves the dead man. The world holds this dead man captive. But there's also a being that rules over the kingdom of this world. Referred to here in verse 2 as the prince of the power of the air, we know this person to be Satan. It is not popular in recent days or centuries, perhaps, to teach or preach often about the reality of Satan and his demonic agents. I mean, Eric referred to Satan and his demons in the opposition to his ministry. But the Bible does frequently, and perhaps we should more often consider the reality of Satan, especially when we consider the dark before the prologue that we once lived in. The devil exercised dominion over us. This is clearly stated in the Bible. And if we look back on our lives and we look at the world, there is a ruler of the world. This is also a cause of our corruption. But lest we are quick, lest we are quick to say, the devil made me do it. I don't know if it's popular for kids to say that anymore, but the devil made me do it. Let us also understand that ungodly men have no excuse, no excuse at all in saying that they are driven by Satan to commit all sorts of trespasses and sins against God. Mankind is subject to tyranny, subject to captivity to Satan because mankind is rebellious against God. None of mankind are the slaves of Satan except those who have renounced the service. And refuse to yield to the authority of God. 
So let us blame ourselves for having so cruel a master as Satan. Now, what does Satan do? What does Satan do? If you want to jot down um, uh, this reference, I'm going to go to it. 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. Second Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is Satan's goal. This is Satan's most grievous offense. Not only does Satan enslave Dead men walking with Satan is blinding them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Satan is real. Satan is the prince of demons, the ruler of this world, the God of this world. These are references that Scripture makes, titles that Scripture gives to Satan. The normative culture of our world is evil. The norm, the default, the, where, the, where the dial goes if you let go of it, is evil. And God permits the dominant culture and themes and motifs and attitudes of this world to be evil and under the control of Satan for a time. But there is hope. And here I've got to jump a little bit ahead. In Christ, we have a new master. In the coming verses, the after, we see that we are raised and seated with our new master. Elsewhere, Paul writes, let me read these verses to you. Galatians 1, 3, and 4. Galatians 1, 3, and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the current evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And also in Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, 13 and 14. He, speaking of Jesus, he has delivered us, we're speaking of God, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's another master that we are to serve. Dead men walking are in captivity to the world. Dead men walking are in captivity to the ruler of the world. But dead men walking are also in captivity to their own flesh. Our innate problem is amplified all the more because as dead men, we live according to the guidance of our own natural dispositions and our own inclinations, which are leading us to death. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This verse emphasizes that as dead men outside of God, we all lived according to our fleshly passions, our desires. But note it's not just like what we would consider lust, you know, our passions, the things that control us. It also says the mind. It's not simple enough for us to neatly categorize that, um, yes, we lived according to the lust of the body. No, even our reason, even our intellect is anti-God, is opposed to God. Our entire mind and nature, our passions, held us captive in sin. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul states in blunt terms, uh, Romans 8, 6 through 8, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Romans 8, 6 through 8. So our final piece of bad news for today. You've got to come back next week, please. Our final piece of bad news is that man is condemned. This dead man, enslaved and captive to the world, to the prince of the power of the air, and captive to his own flesh, this man, this dead man is also condemned. And this is the crux of the problem. This is the, the, the culmination of the bad news, that mankind is deserving, deserving of God's wrath. There is a chilling turn of phrase in verse number three. Look at that. Verse number three of Ephesians two. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. From birth, we were children of wrath. All men without exception are pronounced guilty before God until they are redeemed. I don't know about you, but that children of wrath line really grabbed me because earlier in chapter 1, I may have even preached it. Um, I, I tend to forget what, what the other guys preached and what I preached. But when we talked about in, earlier in chapter 1, in verse number 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And we talked about that, like well, all the privileges of a natural born son to be adopted. And so to say, we are children of God earlier in chapter 1, and now children of God's wrath. Do you get that? We're. People that are dead men walking and condemned and captive have a closer relationship with the wrath of God than to do with God himself. That is their familial relationship with God's wrath and God's judgment. What is the nature of this wrath, though? I mean, for us, again, wrath is kind of an antiquated word. We talk about being mad or angry, but the wrath of God is not an impulsive anger like we might have. It is not a selfish or arbitrary anger. It is not impersonal, just being ticked off at everything. This is God's personal anger against sin. And as counterintuitive as it might be, God's wrath is a holy and loving response to human wickedness. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Wrath is the just, holy judgment of God. God isn't mad because we disobeyed. He's not lashing out. God's wrath is his action as a righteous, just judge who must, if he is to remain just, he must pass the sentence of punishment on those who break his law. If he did not do so, he would not be just. If he could tolerate sin, he would not be holy. If he ignored mankind's sin and trespasses, he would not be loving. Eternal punishment separated from God is the righteous requirement of the law and is deserved by every person. So this is a very heavy and dark subject today. I hope that you will, if you have not already, peek ahead to the next two words in the next verse, in verse 4. I hope that you are motivated more than ever that, Lord willing, you will be here next week to continue this thought. Like, I can't tell, we have a whole day of sun today, but you know those days where it's like gray and you see a glimmer of sun for a minute and you change your clothes, you're going to go out and run, then you go out and it's raining. 
That's that's the hope that we have. These next two words, but God, you have dead man, you have dead man captive, dead man condemned, but God. So come back and see what God does for us. God has a purpose for us studying these verses today and even a providential hand in how the preaching team divided up these verses when we started the the, um, study in Ephesians. As I said, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel does not become great news until we recognize the bad news. Probably more accurately say we don't understand fully that the good news of the gospel is truly great news until we recognize the bad news. For those of you here who know the truth of God's grace and you have seen his mercy and love pour out in your lives and his gracious quickening as the King James says, the making alive of your dead heart so that you respond in repentance for sins. Our prayer for you this week has been that you would see these verses and say, yes, yes, that that was me. That you're saying, look, Tim, emphasize that Paul is using the past tense. Paul is saying you were dead. You once walked. We all once lived. We were children of wrath. Yes, with you, I give glory to God and I give thanks to God and I worship him for that past tense. I thank God that many people here have been delivered from that state of death and captivity and punishment and condemnation. But I would encourage all of us not to pass too quickly through passages such as this that talk about the bad news. As Christians, rehearsing our prior state, understanding what we came from. It's kind of like when we see on TV a celebrity or a ball player and and people are describing him as someone who stays grounded. That's a person who remembers where he came from. We talk pejoratively of people who don't remember where they came from. They don't remember their, their humble beginnings. In a much more meaningful application, Christians must remember our plight before the rescue. Remembering that we contributed nothing to our salvation. Remembering that is needed because our bent, our natural inclination is still, even after salvation, to fulfill our own prideful lusts. We can say with our mouth, um, especially you know, if you really love the doctrines of grace, you can say, yes, I was totally depraved. And then in parentheses, but I'm probably better than some people that God has saved. We can still hold pride in our hearts. We can still elevate things to importance like ourselves that are not right. Deep down, we still want to believe that God chose us because of something in us. Remembering that God and his mercy and for his own glory reached down, made us alive, lifted us up. Remembering that what God did is what should inform our worship. Remembering that is what should drive our sanctification. Remembering that is what enables our pursuit of holiness. Because without that knowledge, we will tend to do those things that glorify ourselves. I don't know where this message and these verses hit you. If you're a person who tends to struggle with self-condemnation and sin, these verses are still here for you. But I would say, please be sure you come back next week and hear 
what God does after. But if you're a person who hears this and says, yada, 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 Tim, you know, yes, we get it, dead, sinful. You know, this doesn't interest you. This doesn't grip your heart. This doesn't remind you of what you came from. Be concerned. We should not have any resentment over being reminded of our former status. We should be filled. Being reminded of that should fill us with joy and gratitude. We shouldn't be bored looking at these verses with this flashback, so to speak, um, like an old photograph of the of the, uh, the the slums that we came from. Sometimes people that succeed in the world will, in their biographies, they'll talk about like they have a picture of the house where their parents grew up and they keep it in their wallet. Why do they do that? To be reminded of the blessings. Hopefully a believer would say to be reminded of the blessings of God. But even non-Christians see value in recognizing our former estate. A believer's heart should be very full because the look back in these three verses is so dark. To the non-Christian here, whether you are a visitor a child, a teenager, or even someone who has sat in church your whole life. I halfway expect that you might say, whoa, with the heavy stuff. I came to church to be uplifted and to be motivated to get through the next week. And you just dragged me down, Tim. I understand that reaction. I understand that this has been a time full of dire news being reviewed and emphasized and outlined. For the non-Christian here, though, I want you to know that although the news is dire, Although you may be hearing for the first time or understanding for the first time or paying attention for the first time that what God and his words say about your current condition. There is hope. This is not a situation where you should say, if that's the case, then I can't do anything about it. I'm dead. I'm, I'm captive. I'm enslaved. I'm condemned. I can't do anything about it. I'm dead. Remember? Next week, we'll see more about what God does. We'll see the words, but God, and see the meaning that that has for all of us. But I don't want you to wait if God is gripping your heart. I want you to know that there's no contradiction in God's call to you today. Which God's call is repent from your sins. Believe in the salvation offered to you in the person and work of God's Son, Jesus. You are dead. And you can't do anything about it on your own. If you're outside of Christ, but that is why it is wonderful and glorious that it is God that gives life. It is God that gives the faith to believe. It is God that gives a new heart that is repentant of the sin that drives you and God apart. Call upon him today for salvation. In first Thessalonians, Paul describes Jesus as he who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we may have been children of wrath, but Jesus delivers us from that wrath. The good news of the gospel does not become great news until we recognize the bad news. And until we recognize our very great need for a Savior, we will not live as if we have a great Savior. So receive Him today. Rejoice if you have already been saved and live in joy knowing where you came from. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this corporate look back for those here who are in attendance who are professing and living as saved individuals who are yours. 
thank you for this providential, timely look back at what you lifted us up from. And we pray that this would not be something that would discourage, but that we would just be driven to our knees in humility and thankfulness and joy, that we would see all that you have given to us, even with the challenges that lie ahead in the coming year, with the earthly sadness, the effects of corruption, of disease, of conflict, that we can see the bigger picture, that we can see the the much worse problem that we had outside of Christ, which is to be separated from you. We know that going into what we consider truly and feel to be challenges, that we are still yours and that you are refining us and that you are shaping us. I do pray, Father, for those here who are seeing these verses. I pray that those here who are not Christians would not brush past this and just look for the positive, self-uplifting statements that we might pick out of context in your word, but that they would understand that this bad news is for them, that they this is a warning, this is a description to those who are not aware, for those who are blinded by Satan from seeing the light of the gospel. I pray that this truth will penetrate them and that they will not rest, that they will be unsettled about their state before you. For those here who may struggle with condemnation, I pray that you would comfort with these words, that they would see the past tense, that these little grammatical suffixes would bring comfort and that they would recognize that that's what you pulled them up from and that they can rejoice in that. Father, I pray that whatever heart need there is here, that you'll use this dark prologue to work your will in that heart and life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.